Welcome back, everyone, to another episode here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. It is Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Jam-packed show for you guys today. On today's show, to Michael Cole of the Memphis Commercial Appeal to talk all things Grizzlies, plus John Taylor of Fangraphs.com to talk all things Major League Baseball and all the big stuff in Major League Baseball. So Michael and I talk all things with uh, Bane, Ja, Triple J, Taylor Jenkins, all that kind of stuff. Um, Why a matchup with the uh, Timberwolves in the first round might be a little spicy, uh, but we'll see. Um, Plus, John and I talked about uh, Kettle Marte getting extended in Arizona, uh, Albert Pujols being back in St. Louis, Chris Archer uh, going to the Twins, uh, Jose Ramirez, and if he'll get an extension in Cleveland, and then some uh, second base power rankings uh, per fan graph. So all that more coming up here on today's edition of the Jason Moss Podcast. Don't forget, folks, if you would prefer to watch this very program, guess what? You can. YouTube.com, type in the Chase Thomas Podcast, hit that subscribe button. That simple, that easy. Go ahead and do that today. Plus, yeah, there's more. Uh, the headquarters, HQ, ChaseThomasPodcast.com. Go visit that very website for access to all my previous episodes, all that good stuff. Um, Sports Renaissance Man, that's me, SportsRenaissanceMan.substack.com. Type in your email, that simple. And then, of course, if you're not already uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode on this daily podcast. Um, and if you're already subscribed and you listen to these shows every single day, but you haven't already left this show a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcast, please make sure that you go ahead and uh, do that today. It helps other people find the show and helps this show continue to grow. So do it today. Uh, that would be great. Um, follow me on Twitter, Chase Thomas. Uh, chase double underscore thomas uh like the facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer all right uncle darren let's go chase thomas pod the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right we're back the chase thomas podcast where i am joined as i am at this time every week with John Taylor, with the New York City backdrop behind him, the beautiful New York City backdrop behind him. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. John, good evening, sir. How are you? Good. Who or what is a Chase Elliott? Oh, this is, see, before we got started recording, um, we were we were talking about where John is familiar with in the South. And like the the Southern. That, yeah. This is a good mm-hmm. sign that I'm, I'm not familiar with the South, is it? So Chase Elliott is a NASCAR driver. From okay. Dawsonville, Georgia. His dad was from Dawsonville, Dawsonville, Georgia, the North Georgia Mountains, sir. So Chase Elliott, and he's also so I'm always a fan of Chases, like in general, because there's not many of us. It's it's the whole um Tobias Funke type deal where it's like yeah, there are dozens, there are dozens of us. Of do- yeah. Yes. And my favorite part about him is that he isn't actually named Chase, like myself, where we got nicknamed Chase right away, but our legal name has nothing, has no trace of the word Chase in it. So all kinds of box check there. So shout right. to Chase Elliott. Yeah. Nice yeah, kid. You should, you, should, you should try to get him on the show and just have an old Chase chat. Chase oh chat. my goodness. I Hey, you, <laughs> a Chase chat. There's just not many. Like, do, also, do you I, know the, I, yeah. I love the nominative determinism of a NASCAR driver being named Chase. That's just wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I won't lie, John. Uh, the Sports Renaissance Sons Women and I have talked about like future kid names. And I am dead set on cash. 
being what if okay. if I have a son. Like I'm I'm I just I need it. You are like, already prepping for that kid to be in the perfect game system by like yes, 10 years. 100%. Old. Yes, 100%. Like or on rivals. Yes, I need it. I don't want it. I need it. Like I need to be like just the swag and I want like I want this podcast to be big enough where I can buy him that gold chain where he is just raking at 11 years old. They're like, who's that? Cash Thomas? No, when, like, you, when he shows up in the Little League broad in the Little League World yeah. Series broadcast, you know, he's got to have some kind of swagger to him. 100%. And Cash Thomas is just cool. Like, Cash is such a cool... Like, I, I will not put his legal name Cash. Like, that will not be a thing. That will not be on his legal documentation. But that is absolutely my... Like, it's a must for me. The, the sports one, the and I, we've talked about it where I'm like, I'm, I'm dead set on Cash. I need Cash. Not like I need cash, but like I need the name. I mean, we, we yeah. could all use some cash. I think I don't think anyone here would turn down cash. Hmm. Who doesn't love cash? I don't know. I would turn down cash from some people. Like you don't, okay. I don't depending on who it is. Like okay, yeah, fine. I'm not gonna. Yeah, fine. Okay, <laughs> money from. Oh, yeah, this, this is. Just... <laughs> John's over here. Like I don't want to ask questions. Like accidentally canceling myself <laughs> over a completely made up scenario. <laughs> You did it to yourself, John. You were just I really very... did. I really did. You were point blank like, yeah, I'll just take cash from anybody. Who cares? No questions asked. Um, John Taylor, guess what? It's time for national pastime on this very podcast. I love this. You're going to like this because this is this is interesting. So I don't know if you've looked at the this part of the doc yet or not, but quote. 1933 on today it, on today today in baseball and on 1930 in wow in 1933 march 29th quote after missing half of last season when he broke his leg cubs outfielder kiki kyler breaks his other leg and will miss nearly three months three months for a broken leg which is preposterous the 36 year old future hall of famer has led the league in stolen bases four times and will finish with 328 career steals. How do you break both of your legs? What is happening? I've never broken a bone, but also like breaking your leg is hard. And this man broke his leg. It broke two different legs in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, th- there had to be a moment when he broke the first leg where he was like, well, <laughs> at least that's probably not going to happen again, especially not to the other leg. What are the odds of that? And Right. Well, I mean, I how exactly did he break each leg? Does it does your national? It doesn't time? say. Okay. Because I Maybe need he, to know, I, I thought the same thing. Like, what was this man doing to break both legs? He broke one leg a year. I just, I don't know. Are you looking this up, John? It's, I'm looking this up. I'm really genuinely curious now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he broke one leg during a spring training game. Uh, just seems like. Okay, here but like, go. what were you doing to break your leg in a spring training game? Like, his, how, what kind of baseball-related injury would you do to break a leg? So, first of all, his first name is Hazen, which is just great. Uh, <laughs> Hazen is really not a name you see all that often. He also married a yeah. woman named Bertha, which I, I'm <laughs> loving how early 20th century this is. But yes, yeah, so he okay, I'm almost there. Wow, he had a long ass career. Uh, He's a Hall of Famer. Thing. And this Saber bio goes on for quite a damn while. Boy, this I am still... <laughs> I am still scrolling. It's its never going to happen. <laughs> Where? Okay, so in 1932, while rounding third base, he cracked a bone in his left foot oh. and missed six weeks. Okay. 
But that's not I'm even just his gonna, leg, I'm so he, that, that's a different injury. Because it's the most, it is the most 20th century baseball nonsense in the world. Okay. Kyler's reputation as one of the fastest players in baseball ended after he suffered serious injuries in 1932 <laughs> and 1933. While rounding third base on April 24th, 1932, Kyler cracked a bone in his left foot and missed six weeks. Robbed of his, uh, robbed of his ability to take an extra base, Kyler struggled after his return on June 8th. In a weak year in the NL, the Cubs occupied first place for much of May and June, but the season was careening out of control. Players were increasingly resentful of the tyrannical Hornsby, that is to say Rogers <laughs> Hornsby, the manager at the time, who was also under investigation by Commissioner <laughs> Kennesaw Mountain Landis because of his gambling debts. This is, this is where it gets real fun. On July 6th, starting shortstop Billy Jurgis was shot twice by showgirl Violet Popovich <laughs> Valley. Jurgis survived. In an odd twist, Valley blamed her actions on Kyler, who had apparently tried to persuade Jurgis to end the sordid affair. So, is keeping Kyler partially responsible for like the inspiration behind the national, or behind the natural? <laughs> like that—that's the vibe I'm getting. Anyway, he, he broke the other bone in his like 1933 during spring training game. That's this also does not bonkers. explain why, but I'm really glad I learned about that uh, showgirl. <laughs> fair situation whatever you want to call that like that just i mean i want to say that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore but at the same time we just had an oscar ceremony where one man went on stage and slapped the other so who's to say true. what can and cannot happen in this universe anymore that is true oh my goodness i needed that laugh it's been a long day thank you for that john um well we're gonna start the diamondbacks they're making some moves. So they're not making moves like in the standings or in any kind of good way I mean, in 2022. They're they're going to be a bad baseball team in 2022. But what they're doing is, or what they've done rather, is they locked up Marte with a pretty nice extension. John, when you've looked at the numbers and where the Diamondbacks are at, do you like the Kettle Marte extension for Arizona? Yeah, in part because it, it just didn't cost them that much money because it was built on an already existing cheaper extension that Marte had signed back in, I believe 2018. So what mm-hmm. this new deal did was basically tear up the two option years that were remaining at the end of that extension and grafted some new ones onto them that more or less amounts to about a three year, 50 some million dollar deal. And mm-hmm. given how good Marte is both as a hitter and he, you know, he plays an adequate second base and does seem to have some positional versatility, although the Diamondbacks don't seem interested in playing him in center anymore, probably to help keep him healthy. Yeah, that, that's a good deal all the way around for Arizona. And it's a good deal, too, for Marte, you know, to get more money now and also reduce the risk that, you know, the injuries he has struggled through and his place on this very bad team does not end up screwing him in some capacity. You know, this is mm. this is a situation that I know the Diamondbacks did this semi-recently with Starling Marte, where instead of pick up an affordable option, they dumped him for pennies on the dollar at the trade deadline. And given where this team is now, Kettle Marte was probably looking at a similar end result eventually but mm. that is also why i like this deal particularly for arizona because this means that barring them barring Marte getting hurt or arizona moving him for any reason he should be around this wave of prospects that they do have uh, alec thomas and corbin carroll and the rest of these guys start making their way to the majors and start forming the core of what is ostensibly going to be the next competitive diamondbacks team because you're right this 2022 diamondbacks team is not good whether or not Kettle Marte is there, how well he plays, it's not really going to have any impact on that. This is just all about making sure he's around for the future. 
because a guy like I mean a guy like Marte is someone you want to have around for when those prospects show up. Not enough to just have good prospects show up. You need to have good actual players already there too, or else you're just a triple A team with a different name. So I like it for both sides. I, I think it makes a lot of sense for both sides. And if nothing else, like good, I guess, for on Arizona for actually spend being willing to spend money. Although again, at the price point they're getting Marte, it, it, you know, it's kind of hard. They're to not breaking the bank. No, yeah, this is, not. this is, this was a pretty easy decision I think for them to make. Yeah, it is interesting because like we're seeing this more um across the league and i'm curious to see what other teams do because like this kind of leads us into the guardians with jose ramirez where it's like do you does it make sense to extend him and keep him around post lindor and him just be one of their bridge guys when the next group uh theoretically uh the next good exciting cleveland indian or cleveland indians this could take forever cleveland guardians um (laughs) cleveland guardians team comes through like is it the same situation? Do you think it's different? Are there different uh, parts of the Ramirez I mean, stuff I, in Cleveland that I makes think it different? It's diff- if only because Cleveland is in a different position than Arizona, if at least just in terms of competitiveness. Uh, for as much as Arizona is very, very clearly not trying, or Arizona is very clearly not trying this year, and as such, they're just going to be bad. Cleveland, you mm. could argue, is not trying because they once again just refuse to spend any money on anything. But at the same time, there's already a base of talent there that is better than Arizona. And also by mm. virtue of the division they're in, they have a theoretically easier path to the postseason. I mean, if if you look at our postseason odds right now, I mean, Arizona is probably hovering somewhere just right above zero or one or just about zero or one percent. And a quick double check would suggest, yep, we gave them a zero point eight percent chance to make the playoffs. We have the Guardians at 13 and a half. So, I mean, granted, that's, you know, that that's still, they're still both long shots. And I, I really don't, you know, I, I, we haven't, I, we know we've talked about Cleveland. I think we've already decided there's not yeah. really a whole lot about this team to be all that excited about. The difference I think with, with extending Ramirez is if you're the, if you're Cleveland, you can make an argument that in the next couple years, you will have both Gabriel Arias and Brian Rocchio coming up at some point in the near future. Uh, both of them are very, very good middle infield prospects who will almost certainly be a part of whatever it is Cleveland you know, does going forward. Uh, beyond that, they have, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I was, I was about to say Nolan, uh, Nolan Gorman, but he's a, he's on the, he's on the Indians. I, or not, on, yeah. he's on the card, but I've confused myself, but you know, even, even beyond uh, Arias and Rokio, who you could argue, well, if they have those guys coming up, maybe they don't need Ramirez, although Ramirez is, is chunked over at third base. Uh, yeah. You could certainly make the argument anyway that, or I think Cleveland would probably make the argument that why are we going to spend that money on a guy who's getting older when you have these young guys coming up who are, you know, pretty much ready slash are going to cost very little money because that's honestly the most important thing that there is to Cleveland, which also creates the issue of, I, I don't know. And I was, I know Gorman is on, is on the Cardinals. Lynn Jones is in Cleveland. That's that's the other guy yeah. I, was, I was trying to to think of mention as someone coming. Tyler Freeman as well, though he profiles as more of a, I think more of a second division starter perhaps. But regardless, like they mm-hmm. they have some they have prospects coming. So you could make that argument that you know you extend Ramirez and you make him a bridge to that next group of of Cleveland prospects. But at the same time, that would assume that Cleveland actually wants to spend money and certainly extending Ramirez is going to cost way, way more than it would cost to than it than what Marte did. So consider me skeptical that it would even happen. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, I don't think there's any argument you can make that Cleveland is better off not having Jose Ramirez than it is keeping him. 
but given what he's going to be, not only given what he's going to demand in free agency, but also given what Cleveland could theoretically extract from a team in a trade between now and when it does free free agency, I have a hard time seeing them either passing up the projects they could get or deciding to part with the amount of money that it would require to, to make sure that he stays in Cleveland for the rest of his career. That's interesting. And it's also, do we ever get like a full on explanation for what happened for those months a couple years ago where he just batted like 93, like just what, what no, happened? I, like we're, it, yeah, I think, I think it's just those things. The easiest explanation is shit happened. Like sometimes guys yeah. just struggle and there doesn't necessarily need to be a reason, or at the very least, maybe there's a reason we don't necessarily see. Yeah. But regardless, yeah, I, I've never seen one. Um, but I mean, so it I wasn't just not... like a, it, it was just, it was horrific where we thought Jose yeah, it, Ramir- it was Ramirez was slump. done. Yeah. Awful slump. You, you look back on it now, it's, it's really weird because Jose Ramirez since 2016 is weighted run, his weighted, ru- weighted runs created plus figures have been 119, mm-hmm. 146, 147, 108, 166, yeah. 137. So again, yeah. aside from that 2019 season we're talking about where he just collapsed and Truthfully, it yeah. wasn't even a full season. It really was just the first half of the season, and he seemed to snap yeah. back into place after that. You know, we're, we're talking about been consistently one of the best hitters in baseball at a premium defensive position, who's been also hideously underpaid with his entire time in Cleveland. His contract was just seven years of $48 million, and there's still another club option left on that that probably is only about 12 or so million dollars. He's going to be looking to make money when he reaches free agency. Uh, and I don't think unless Cleveland offers him basically the moon, it's also for him, what is, beyond whatever good feelings he has toward the city of Cleveland and Guardians fans, what is the incentive for him to stay with a team that just has shown no desire to spend otherwise? You know, it's, I, I, you're Jose Ramirez. I don't know why you want to lock yourself into that place unless Cleveland throws more money at you that you've ever seen in your life. And again, that doesn't seem particularly likely because this is Cleveland we're talking about. So I think they should. Will they? Mm-hmm. No, I, I would bet very strongly that that Jose Ramirez, uh, that either this or next season is his last season in Cleveland. Hmm. Um, speaking of last seasons, John, this is a natural transition. Thanks for teeing that up for me. I, I appreciate that. Uh, Albert Pujols' last Major League Baseball season is happening this year, and he gets to go out with the St. Louis Cardinals. The DH is a huge home run, man. It's it's just a delight. Like, what if that's like the way we get the retirement swan songs for all of our favorite uh, just superstars of yesteryear where they get to go out with their former team? It's like they all do the Emmett Smith Cardinals run where it's like nobody will remember it in the end, the kind of season it is. But it's just this nice thing where Albert Pujols got this great reception this week and him back in a Cardinals uniform just looks right. Like Albert Bullholz in a St. Louis Cardinals uniform looks right. I don't care if he's not good this year. I just thought it was cool. And it is kind of, it, it, it was just kind of wild to see him back in a Cardinals uniform, right? Yeah, it is. It It's very weird because it feels like a certain, like a loop has been closed. It's been open for way <laughs> too long. Um, it's been particular, like just the weird LA Dodgers stint last year where he was actually pretty reasonably productive. Yeah. He basically just turned into the weak side of a, of a platoon at first base and he mm. was pretty good at that. But regardless, you know, that, yeah, it, it, it just, he just makes more sense as a car. I mean, that's where it all started. That's where it all began. And that's kind of where it all needs to, to remain and end eventually. And yeah, I, I like that idea that adding that universal DH means there are 15 more spots for teams in the NL to do something like this. And granted, not every team has an Albert Pujols. I mean, may, I don't know, maybe the Marlins are going to get Jeff Conine out of retirement, but like, 
you know, this is this is this can be something that teams can use to do stuff like this. To do stuff like you know, you can do those fan favorite things or just do those things. It's like, hey, isn't that cool? We just get to see Albert Pujols one more time. Yeah. The thing about it with the Cardinals is like I don't know how much room this roster necessarily has for feel good stuff like that. Like this is already this is kind of an offensively challenged group in a fair number of places. Uh shortstop, second base. I think Yadi Molina has been cooked for going on three or four years now. Uh Harrison Bader is a question mark in center. Dylan Carlson got had a rough kind of rookie season, and we're you know not really sure what that's gonna look like. DH right now is a lot of Corey Dickerson and Lars Newtbar, which I don't know how good you feel about if you're the Cardinals. So that's kind of the thing. Like, it's one thing if Pujols is just going to be there kind of to be a ceremonial, like he goes around and he says hello and he's, you know, they have all these moments and special things for him. And I'm, I'm sure he's going to get somewhere between 20 and 35,000 standing ovations. But he's also projected for like 200 plate appearances right now at a 300 hmm. Woba and negative wins above a placement. Like, that's not particularly helpful to the Cardinals who are especially given that this, the only real competition in this division is the Brewers. Like you, I, you can the Cubs probably, are competition. The Cubs are competition. In, yeah, you can talk me into the Cubs, at least being sport playing spoiler. I don't, I don't yeah. think they have what it takes to win a division, but I do think that they can at least be pesky. You certainly are not going to talk me into Cincinnati or Pittsburgh doing anything other than stinking out loud. Hold on. Hold day. on. Mr. John Taylor. Tommy fam is there he's bad he like he is he has arrived in cincinnati to save the day people are talking all of this mess economy which i'm sure that southwest ohio's premium adult entertainment venues (laughs) could use the boost that are that a millionaire like tommy fam could provide or whatever whatever his current net worth is. i need a local cincinnati commercial where it's like joe burrow super bowl uh, quarterback and then Tommy Pham sharing the screen with him where it's like yeah you love the Bengals well here's the 2022 Cincinnati Reds Tommy Pham come on down go Reds big red machine maybe the Reds should just like see if they if Joe Burrow wants to just play there for like a couple months or something honestly like that's probably no worse a useful roster spot than what the Cardinals are doing with pools but that's kind yeah. of the thing it's like I think what you know let me be the the at blank on all this like it's again it's perfectly nice to, to celebrate the guy and ha- let him have his moment and bring him back for the fans etc cetera, etc cetera. you should not be giving him 200 plate appearances he should not be in a position where he's playing regularly like that what he did last year for the dodgers was so limited in its scope and even yeah. that really wasn't all that much like that felt honestly way more like a dead bounce than anything else like albert Pujols is pretty definitively like shown that aside from some leftover pop and being able to run into a mistake pitch, there's not really a whole lot else he brings to the table at this point, at least as an active yeah. player. I'm sure there's some clubhouse component, but on the other hand, your clubhouse has Molina and Adam Wainwright in it. What on earth do you need another veteran guy like that for? So I guess mm-hmm. if I'm a Cardinals fan, sure, it's nice to have Pools come back, but I'm also probably kind of annoyed that he's coming back in a way where he's actually expected to contribute something because that's not his team, fault, John, that's not his not, fault. This, that's the thing. This team looked at the DH spot, which they knew was coming this entire time and just kind of went, eh, we'll figure it out, which the equally, the more frustrating thing about that, if you're a Cardinals fan is that they have a, a young first baseman named Juan Yapez hanging mm-hmm. out down in triple a who absolutely mashed there last year. And is pretty much just a bat first for baseman, which means he's a DH. So there is already a spot right there for a guy who's making very little money and could probably be at the very least a league average hitter if you gave him the time. But instead, yeah. Pool 
Pujols is going to get who knows how long. And that, that's kind of the other thing. It, it's one thing if, you know, when the Dodgers signed Pujols, the, the reality in the back of my mind is, oh, this could end tomorrow. They could just, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, Andrew Freeman could wake up tomorrow and just say, you know what, I actually don't think Albert Pujols makes any sense here anymore. And there, there was neither emotion nor money tying them to keeping him around. That was yeah. they could make as clean a break as possible, and no one would have thought twice about it. The Cardinals mm. don't have that luxury. They don't have that luxury now because they have made it a like, especially now the pools has declared this is it. I'm retiring after the end of the season. That mm. this is going to be along with the already existing Yadi Molina impending retirement celebration, and more likely not the impending Adam Wainwright retirement celebration, an Albert Pujols retirement celebration like this. If it feels perfectly on brand that this is all happening in St. Louis, which is always like that franchise has always felt more like a baseball museum than an actual team. But at the mm. same time, it's like, okay, like we've loaded up on enough old guys who aren't actually that good anymore. Like we don't like I, pools. Pools is a nice story, but nice stories, I think, are a little easier to swallow when you're a team like the Dodgers and everything is great. Or when you're a team like the Pirates and nothing matters. When you're a team mm. like the Cardinals, where those marginal wins really, really count how good are you going to feel about, you know, Pujol striding to the plate and just whiffing straight through three 96 mile an hour fastballs because he's, he lost that bat speed a decade ago, you know, like, I don't know. I, again, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a grump and a, you know, whatever, but like, I, that is this, the other side of it is that there is no such thing essentially as free adulation, like putting mm-hmm. Albert Pujols on this roster means a roster spot. That's not going to someone who could help more. And again, they're, Almost any player in baseball would be more helpful than an extremely one-dimensional 41-year-old who cannot run anymore. And it's also mm. going to be a roster spot tied down infinitely because how is it going to look if come mid-June and Pujols is hitting 180 with like four home runs? Are the Cardinals really going to have the stomach to say, we can't do this anymore? Sorry, man. I don't know. That That's just going to look weird and ugly. And it's almost like I understand why St. Louis wanted to do this, but I, I also don't really get why they wanted to put themselves in this position because the more likely outcome is something like that, where Pujols is just contributing absolutely nothing and sucking up a roster spot and just basically hurting the team's bottom line going forward. Oof. John Taylor. I know, real, real, like real, real rain cloud right over here for the people in St. Louis, but like, that's the other thing. Like, what is what is the optim where where would the optimism optimism even come from that Pujols is going to be any level of contributor this year? Except again in a super limited role as a DH against left-handed pitching. Yeah, I mean, I don't maybe, know. I, they, maybe they also there's no financial like, like a win of value out of that. I don't know. No, there's no I financial cost, like, but there is yeah. there is the opportunity cost. There's the opportunity cost of playing Pujols instead of Yepes or getting. But more you still can play Yepes. Right, like you can, Not you can pivot really because you have, you have Paul Goldschmidt at first. So unless he gets hurt, that's where all the at bats there are going. Well, they I mean, made you the play as a DH, they made the right? Signing Corey Dickerson, who is going to be presumably their DH against right-handers, and he fits that role very well. And he also should not be in the field, so he's not someone you want in the outfield anyway. And again, they have plenty of other bats. They they really should be seeing like what can we what what is there in these guys? Like what is there to be found in these guys? Particularly again in Yepes and Newtbar. Like these are guys. And you can even make the argument, too, like maybe this is somewhere where you can start getting Nolan Gorman some at-bats and see how things look. You know, the, the DH spot is not just somewhere you're supposed to throw your old guys who can still hit a little bit and hope everything turns out okay. Or at least it That's what it's going to be for a while. That, that is, is what it's going to be for a while, and that's usually what it has been elsewhere. But I think yeah. especially for the Cardinals, especially, again, given the presence of Yepes, why not see what he can do instead? You know, I get yeah. it. Pujols is a nice story, but it, he's 
very unlikely to contribute to a winning Cardinals baseball team. And I think it's way more likely to hurt them than he is to help. Um, John, bullying works. People forget that. And your bullying of the Minnesota Twins has pushed them to be like, all right, fine, fine. How about a Chris Archer? Are you fine. happy? How about <laughs> I guess. How about uh... Chris Archer? I, I mean, Th- I don't... this is good, right? Like, hey, they're taking more shots. Like, I don't know if it'll work. Probably not. But hey, they're adding another arm. In terms of the guys still available at this point, Archer was probably the best bet. I think it would be either, excuse me, him or Johnny Cueto. And I, I, I don't really know that Cueto throwing 90 miles an hour in the American League is, is going to get you too terribly far. Well, I guess, I, I mean, the DH is now everywhere, so what does it matter? Yeah, but that's true. Archer is a guy who, I, I, I'm not going to lie, like, I didn't, granted, I didn't watch him pitch last year because he threw all of 19 innings. So there wasn't really a whole lot of Chris Archer to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, he throws 92 now. He's lost two or three miles an hour off his fastball from what it was pre all the injuries that more or less ruined his career. Mm-hmm. I I don't, I mean, the slider is still, he's got a, a good slider, I, I guess, but like, or at least not a bad one. And his changeup is still a, a, a very, very strong pitch. But this does not feel like someone who you can expect more than like four or five innings out of at best. Hmm. And even that's, I don't even know how good I feel about that. This Again, this is a guy who's thrown 20 innings in the last two years. Who's coming off the, arguably the single worst injury a pitcher can suffer in thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, an injury that has outright destroyed the career of pretty much every pitcher who's suffered from it. Like, as a, as a depth chart long shot, or it's just a guy you bring into camp and see, hey, what the hell, why not see what's left in Chris Archer's arm? Sure. As a guy mm-hmm. who pretty much jumps right into the number five spot in your rotation, okay, I, I don't feel great about that. And I, I particularly don't feel great about that because, as I've said over and over when it comes to the Twins, they had all winter to do better than this. All winter. And they just didn't for whatever reason. I'm still so perplexed as to what the plan was for Minnesota this offseason beyond just kind of winging it. Because this is what happens when you wing it. You end up with Chris Archer in your rotation on purpose. And that's like that's no knock on Chris Archer. He seems like a super chill dude who's again was a great pitcher in his peak in Tampa, but like those days are gone. Yeah. That guy's not coming back. Like, and I don't think the twins expect that guy to come back, but I don't even really know what what is there to expect from Chris Archer at this point. I don't I mean, I don't think anyone knows, but would it surprise you terribly if the best you got out of Chris Archer was like a 475 ERA and like 110 innings? But that's is that not, better? It's better than the alternative, right? This year, I guess. But that's not really worth that much. I mean, that's yeah. maybe half a win total. You know what they should maybe? have done is let him spend the first six months in Texas, do the rehab program, and then trade for him this summer. See, I, I can I can buy something as like maybe if you want to try Archer as a kind of Michael Waka, like the way the way the Rays did with Michael Waka, where it's like he throws three or four innings, he gets through a lineup twice, and that's it. Like he yeah. probably does not have the stamina or stuff anymore to face a lineup more than three times. What is this? The Matt Harvey role? <laughs> and I, I mean, I can't say for sure. I mean, depending, I, I can't say for sure based on how Minnesota's built their roster, whether or not that would work, whether or not they have the personnel to kind of have every fifth day be essentially a long bullpen day. Mm-hmm. But even if so, like, again, like I, 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 this is, this is the best use of these resources at present moment. Because ultimately, it's just money. It was, you know, you're going to spend it somewhere. You might as well get the best guy who's still left. 
And I would guess that Minnesota is probably still in conversation with Oakland, or at least has still kept that tab open with regards to either of Sean Manea or Frankie Montes. Well, they just re-signed Jed Lowry, so I think they're they're back in the thick of things in the AOS, John. So I would I wouldn't hold my breath about a trade. Baseman Jed Lowry. Let me let me note that for the record. Mm-hmm. It's the A's are a A's are a Ponzi scheme, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but oh yeah, there there does definitely exist the opportunity and the possibility to up you know, at some point during the season or at the deadline. And I imagine that's probably the mindset in Minnesota, which is let's see where we are by the time July thirty first rolls around and kind of adjust from there, especially because you know with the expanded playoffs, you know, you 82, 83 wins very well might do. Probably not yeah. in the state of the AL East, but you never know. So on the one hand, well, sure, the AL like, East is going to beat each other up. Like they're like the AL true. Central. Like the AL East are going to beat each other up. Like that's well, one of the yeah, problems on the there. AL yeah. Central, you can you can pick on. I guess you pick on the just the Royals at this point, but no, you can't even pick on the Royals anymore. But I, I think, think the AL Cent- like I'm sorry, John. Did you miss Zach Grinky coming home? There's no picking on the Kansas City Royals anymore. No, I'm so Brock Maldi's back. So I am happy so happy. That. That's yeah. that's the homecoming I like because not only does that does that have that cool emotional moment for the fans who get to see Grinky yeah. come back, but also because he's actually useful. Mm-hmm. He's probably going to be pretty good for that team. He's probably going to throw 150 so above league average innings. That has value. But- Danny Duffy had to die to bring him back home. Hey. You got to do what you got to do. Danny Duffy <laughs> died for our sins, but mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, I, fine. I pick up Archer now, fine. I, there's only room for the Twins to do more, but I, I think being in a position where it was Chris Archer or who the hell knows what, really not ideal. And right. also something that could have been entirely avoided if Minnesota had simply signed one of the like 18 available free agent starters projected to finish with more than like a win and a half in, in terms of uh, wins above replacement next year. Like that, mm. that, that was a pretty decent sized group of guys they could have picked from. And it would not have even been like a, it wasn't even like, Oh, you need to drop $300 million on Garrett Cole. It's like for literally 50 bucks, you could have John Gray. Like I would rather have John Gray than Chris Archer. I mean, I think everyone would rather have John Gray than Chris Archer, but all of which to illustrate, it would not have cost a whole lot of money or required a whole lot of effort. Instead, the Twins did what they did, and fine, but I don't know. I, I I would be surprised, quite honestly, if Archer is still a part of this rotation past, like, June 1st, really. Like, I, I just, I don't, he lost so much velocity, and, like, his, I just can't imagine that there's, there really is enough there for him to be anything more than, like, at best, five and fly every fifth day. Oh, man. Well, we'll see. We'll see, John Taylor. We'll see what happens. I think it's a good... Uh, it's still just, hey, I appreciate them continuing to add pieces and see what happens. I, I do, too. I, like I, the, the, This rotation with Chris Archer is better than this rotation without it. Or with him. True. And still, I'm sure there's some level of upside here because he was Chris Archer at one point. Just it didn't... Ha- like The Twins could have and should have done more before this so that they weren't in a position where they're signing their fifth starter roughly a week before the season starts. Like that's really yeah. just not an ideal circumstance. I bet you they were also in just kind of a weird spot with ownership, right? Like I, I imagine with a lot of these owners now, when like you have a season from hell like that and your, your season just implodes and you're the worst team in the AL central in a bad division. And you're like, no, 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 no. Things are fine. Like this was a weird, weird year. I know your instinct is like, let's just get rid of everybody and spend $43 million. Let's do that. Let's get, let's get involved in Jock Peterson's tweet or like his tweets. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's go in that, in that 
uh, path. Let's get called and, up a jock. Right. Like that's what they're, they're pitching. And it's like, no, 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 We're fine. Like it's, we're going to pivot. We're going to bounce back. It was a bloop year. We call it the Jose Ramirez, uh, 2019 year. That's what that was. Like nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. It's like the Leslie Nielsen gif, um, with the, uh, the fire yeah, burning. The go- yeah. The, the best baseball uh, movie ever made. Oh, it's a good take. Guns a baseball uh, movie. I think I, I won't fight you on that. Got a baseball um, game in it by my, by my extremely rigorous accounting that makes it a baseball movie. That's fine with me. I mean, people don't like great. mine. Angels in the outfield has always been mine, but like, I'm not going to get upset about whatever. I, I don't know. A star matter. turn from a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> dude. I just what a what a movie. There's a there's a scene there where people forget where uh, they did the classic bit where they put the nachos in the seat uh, before ah, yes. the guy sits down, and just it's crim de la crim comedy, and that always cracked me up as a child. I'm sure it's just the same level of humor. And it aged timelessly. Um, but what I was saying there was just, look, they fought off ownership and they were like, no, we are not doing this. We're not selling high on everybody. We're not doing this. We're going to double down. We're going to sign Chris Archer. We're going to figure this out and we're going to bounce back next year. Look, we got this. And then they were like, hold on. who Who's that on the phone? It's Justin Morneau. Oh no, who's that on the phone? It's Joe Maurer. They're all here. They're all We're here. And the- <laughs> going for the top shelf when Michael Kadire and Josh Willingham were right. Shannon there. Stewart, is that you? Um, no, it's Jock Jones who went to prison. Oh my god. Jock, Jock Jones did some bad things. He, he did some bad I didn't even remember that. Okay. Yeah, feel feel free go. to Google feel free to Google Jock Jones after this to learn about his his crimes. But is that Nick Punto? Is that Nick <sighs> Punto? <laughs> just I, I, yeah i think you're right that that ownership probably made this a weirder offseason for the twins and then it had yeah. to be i think the car the correct contract the perfect example of like that's not a normal contract and it certainly was not something that i think the twins were going to do until it literally fell in their lap even then they still had structure in a way so as to avoid but teams that just win 65 games don't do that the following year. They, yeah that's the thing and I, i'm sure that twins ownership could at least see the idea that like we're not are, we are not a true talent level 65 win team. Mm-hmm. We are better than that. How much better than that is still kind of unclear, but let us try to make some upgrades. But yeah, I think ultimately you can, you can probably point to like, they, they weren't given enough rope to make enough upgrades so that, and that's how you end up in a place where you're forced to do something like sign Chris Archer. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I when in doubt, I think it's safe to blame ownership anyway. And I think that does probably help explain a whole lot of a very kind of schizo off season for Minnesota, but I mean, yeah, it's it is definitely he is definitely a better option in the fifth spot than almost certainly anything they could have pulled out of the out of their system or from anywhere else available, uh, with the exception of if, if Joanne Duran continues to look good, I guess in the minors he's he's going to make a case to come up pretty soon. There you go, um, John Taylor. What about Tommy Finn? No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go back down that road. Um, we'll end on this. So Fangraphs. Uh, a great website that you should go subscribe to if you've not already done so. They're doing the positional power rankings right now. Ooh. And it's a great series, learning a lot, very much enjoy it. And I wanted to highlight the second base positional power rankings. So what, uh, when you were going through this, uh, did you edit, edit this personally or did someone else edit this one? I did not edit this one. Uh, I am okay. currently actually uh, writing a PPR for center field. So I'm in the midst okay. of my own just frantic, slapdash typing but i i did read through it ben clemens wrote it ben is, is a fantastic mm-hmm. writer um thing that really jumped out to me one is it's just i'm not necessarily surprised at how good brandon lau is like he's a great mm-hmm. power hitter who's patient and plays good defense 
But the fact that he's number one on this list, like, it really it really says a lot just about like the Rays are just quietly great in so many places. And a guy like Lau is probably like eighth on the list of dudes on that team you think about in terms of how important they are to the season. But even then, he's this is like this is still the he still makes them the number one team in second base just in terms of projected war, not just from him, but also from uh, from the depth behind him. And that's important too because the depth behind him is a guy in Vidal Bruhan who struggled a bit last year, but is a top prospect within their system. And Taylor Walls, who's a little lower down their list, but is but offers that kind of positional versatility that the Rays love so very much. So mm-hmm. I, I think it. I think what what stands out there is how Rays it is both to have, both to be number one when you're like, oh, I probably would not have expected that, but on second thought, it makes a lot of sense. And also for their depth to be like, oh, these other two guys could probably be starters to the bottom ten teams in the league, right mm-hmm. now without even really trying. So that stood out to me. Um, we are higher on Glaber Torres, I think, than most people probably are at this point. Hmm. Ben makes the point that he is only 25 still. Like, Glaber is still yeah. a little tiny baby. That's kind of wild. It is extremely wild. Like, Glaber has been yeah. in the majors since, like, forever, it feels like. Right. Uh, I personally think that Torres would... I, I genuinely think that him being back at second base should help. Hmm. I think he was so stretched and plainly uncomfortable at shortstop. And so frustrated and just clearly in like just mentally adrift at all the difficulties that that position presented him on top of his already existing difficulties with regards to, you know, the league adjusting back to him and then him having to adjust back to the league. I do think having kind of going back to second base, which just does seem like the more comfortable position for him and also just the better position for him will probably make a difference and maybe let him uh, pick some of that offense back up. But Mm -hmm. Obviously, he, he's a like he's a really big question mark, uh, both for the Yankees and just in general. So you know that 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 also stood out to me. And then kind of past fifteen, everything just kind of not everything starts to blend together. But that there's kind of that paste between fifteen and twenty of just like this year who have a, some have a little bit of upside, some don't really like. I think one that stands out, uh, another one that stands out is Seattle, all the way down at eighteen in particular mm-hmm. because they just seem content to go with Adam Frazier there, despite the fact that Frazier really only has two skills or two plus skills to his name. He can get on base at a mm-hmm. decent clip and he plays good defense. Like there's just not a whole lot else out there. Like he really, he really needs batting at or batted ball luck um, to be in his favor in order to be an above average regular and, or at least an above average regular offensively. And I think Seattle as much as Seattle made moves this offseason to make themselves better, I do think second base is a position where they probably could have done more instead of just settling for the combo of Frazier and Dylan Moore and I guess uh, Abraham Toro is going to be a super utility guy, so he's just going to bounce all over the place. Uh, the Giants, too, are another contending team where, one, like the group of guys they have set for second, Tommy Lastella, Tyro Estrada, Mauricio Dubon, Wilmer Flores, and you know maybe guys beyond that, not a particularly inspiring group. And now we're learning. Now we learned today that Lasella is probably going to miss some time with injury, or that mm-hmm. we've we learned re- recently he's going to miss some time with injury. Uh, he's almost certainly not going to be ready for the start of the season after missing half the season to injury last year. This is not that basically that's not a guy the Giants can count on for any kind of regularity. Although right. you know it's a strong side of a platoon, he wasn't going to be playing regularly anyway. But that that is a real potential problem spot for them. Lasella is not capable of suiting up because Estrada Dubon Flores is just. Uh, not a really good place to be 
Like Dubon's yeah. a good defender, but he doesn't hit. Estrada's a bad fielder. Flores is pretty Flores really should not be playing second base at all anymore, and really only is should be the short side of a platoon. So yeah, I, I I'm curious why the Giants didn't want to do more there. And then I think to Detroit is another team where you look at, you know, they're 23rd on this list. They're going to give almost 500 plate appearances to Jonathan Scope, who is, hmm. like, again, that's not bad. He's, he's going to yeah. be fine. But I does really feel like there probably should be something more that you can do there. Hmm. Um, and then the, the interesting one to me, I think the one that has, I think there's, I don't know how much upside is here because I, I don't know that we've that we've really gotten a sense of who exactly he is right now as a player. But the Blue Jays with Kevin Biggio at second base, obviously, mm. you know, big downgrade going from Semyon to Biggio offensively and probably defensively as well. Um, I don't know. I'm you know he was he was totally lost last year. He missed a lot of time with injury. I don't know. It, it's that that's a big question mark there too. I, I don't even want to talk about the Angels. How on earth is Matt <laughs> Duffy on the top of that depth chart? What? What? How the Angels how are? They, are I, I, like I still this? the Angels roster. Like you're gonna get Matt Oliver again. We did our season season review, but like the Angels are just a different type deal altogether like you go from just mvp type player to player who should not be on a major league roster like next to each other on the like it's just it's one of the weirdest it's, it's rosters absurd. it's absolutely yeah. absurd like their starting middle infield is probably gonna be matt duffy and david fletcher mm. that's horrible that's the worst middle infield non-orioles division in baseball actually i might take the well i mean rugnet odor is really bad but i might mm. take ramon urias just I might take Orias, the Orias Odor total project, total projection over Duffy and Fletcher. Like, hmm. whew, that is so bad. That is so bad. It's bad. I think, oh. I, I think that's the thing for me. I can understand that there's no contender with the exception of the Dodgers, who's loaded at pretty much every position. That just doesn't really happen. But there hmm. are way too many contenders. It feels like here, where even if these guys end up being roughly average at the end of the day, like. Uh, you know, Josh Harrison, Biggio, Duffy, uh, Scope, uh, Listella. I guess Listella is not so much less so, but, uh, you know, Frazier. I think at Gene Segura with the Phillies is another one. But um, mm. even I think Gene Segura is probably the point at which you're like, okay, I'm cool with this guy. And then everything beyond that is like, okay, I'm no longer as cool with this as my starting option. Except for, I think, the Marlins with Jazz Chisholm, which is just a, mm. a, matter, a matter of, you know, is he going to, you know, continue uh getting better over the course of his career and we you know we might as well wait now and see but I, it just feels like there were a fair like there are a fair number of contenders in the bottom half of these rankings where you're looking at the options that exists and you're just thinking to yourself that's the best they could do mm. like how i don't really get how the best that i guess the best they can do is matt duffy because they're a stupid team run by stupid people but the White Sox settling for Josh Harrison and Larry Garcia as a kind of second base combo thing, that's really strange. And I get that they lost Nick Madrigal last year as part of the ill-fated Craig Kimbrell trade, because otherwise he would have been there. Yeah. But I, I just I, I mean the White Sox are just their own thing where I I I don't understand why that team is so reluctant to finish building a roster. Like they they just leave mm. open holes on the team and then don't really ever get around to addressing it. But like that's a it very... rhy- hey, here. It rhymes with Weinsdorf. 
and Mamusa. But <laughs> yeah, the I, I don't understand. Like, Her- Josh Harrison's a fine guy. Like, he's had a nice bounce back from. Uh, That's a guy who's going to get at bats at 47 years old. Like, Josh Harrison's yeah, going like, to find his way to some spot DH uh, sure. spots. Like, he's but, going to. But it's just something where it's like, how can you not? How, why did you not do better than this? Right. Why go? Why? Why intentionally go into a season with Josh Harrison as your starting second baseman as a contender? You don't have to. That that's yeah. what I kind of don't get. It just, it just feels like I know. Again, you can't load every position with an all star. That's just not possible. That's not how you build a team. I'm aware of that you know real life baseball is not fantasy baseball. But man, that the, that the at bats you're giving Josh Harrison as opposed to what you could have been giving. Say, I mean, I don't know if this was ever realistically in play for the White Sox, but like. Trevor's story, for example. Right. Um, like, really that, go for it instead of just kind yeah. of. Yeah, exactly. Like, th- th- again, th- and we've talked about this with the White Sox. So that's a team that's more or less guaranteed to win the division. Um, maybe maybe guaranteed a little strong. But I, I think of, I, I struggle to imagine which team has better divisional odds than the White Sox beyond maybe Milwaukee and Houston, The Dodgers probably, right? The Dodgers yeah, I mean, high. I think at this point, the Dodgers are probably somewhere in the 60s or the 70s. But like the White Sox, mm-hmm. and I, you know, it'll just because I already mentioned, I'll go ahead and look it up for myself instead of making it. It's definitely not the AL East. Well, it's definitely not. No, I mean, the, the highest divisional win percentage in the AL East is the Blue Jays at 44%. The White Sox Oof. are at 65%. For what it's worth, the Astros are at 71. The Brewers are at 72. The Dodgers are also at 72. So they have okay. the fourth highest, uh, by our by our math, the fourth, the fourth highest odds to win their division. They are six wins clear by projection of the twins in the standings. And, you know, that, Wait, that what are the standings for the AL Central as a whole right now? What is uh, it? White Sox, Twins, Guardians, Tigers, Royals is how we have it. Although mm-hmm. Cleveland and Detroit are basically right at 676 and 77 wins each. So it's more or less a tie. And Kansas City is right there at 75. So we, we what we see is bunching at the top and then bunching at the bottom. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I just feel like you you... You can feel pretty. You have a two thirds chance of winning your division. Like the math is really in your favor to a degree that is almost not with any other team. You don't like. You don't need to go over the top to win the division, but you do need to go over the top if you feel like you have any realistic shot at winning a World Series. Yeah. And I feel like that's well. That's where you, you don't just leave those spots there, like Josh Harris or Adam Brazier. I guess the, the Mariners are less so because the Mariners are a borderline playoff team and the White Sox are division favorites, but. I mean, I guess that's the thing. Like, if you were to look at, you know, the the Blue Jays and White Sox are both division favorites, and they're both in the bottom 10 of these, but they're both in the bottom five of these rankings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to hurt either of them all that badly. If anything, I think it would hurt Toronto more than Chicago, but Toronto, I mean, Kevin Biggio also offers more upside theoretically than Josh Harrison does. But it, it's still kind of strange to me to see two otherwise loaded playoff contenders just look at that one pretty important spot on the infield and go, eh, I guess we'll figure that out later it's it's weird it, it it's weird and seemingly kind of self-defeating Oof. i feel like it's a way Tucker of wrapping Carlson up here. face at the camera oh let's no that, that was more that. like a, he makes well, more of this like squinty like yes like you know when you say something to your dog and because uh-huh. dogs don't understand anything they just kind of look at you sometimes they're like hmm? right yeah it's just that's that's just tucker carlson it's just permanent hmm? Except again, like not with it. he doesn't make his eyes wide because that's like a Rache Caldwell or a Steve Harvey. It's more like a yeah. What um squinting? Did you watch Love Is Blind season two? I did. It was a train okay. wreck. It was great though. It's a great train wreck. It was and, a great uh, train wreck. 
Love that show. R.I.P. Shayna. Chaos Demon. Well, see, that's I'm glad you brought her up because that was I was gonna like that's her thing where she does like the yeah the squintiness mm-hmm, yeah there there like, were some in the in that reunion special where she was squinting so hard I don't think her mm-hmm. eyes were open very strange very strange she's, like, she's she's an odd cat that's for sure Shane and Shayna I would watch a reality show with just those two I would absolutely just watch that I mean it's I they're 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 a fun group I mean Do you think it was better than season one I did, I didn't watch season one oh. I, I, um, yeah, I only watched uh, I only watched season two because my girlfriend was like, "We should watch it." And I was like, "Yeah, okay, yeah." Sure. See, and you and were you're pushing in. against it, and you get in. sucked in, man. I'm telling you, I was not a reality show guy until the sports renaissance woman. And there are some of these I get sucked into, and I'm like, "Why do I have a strong take on this? Why do I?" Yeah, have a I, I take? found myself with all kinds of opinions about yeah. the people on this horrible, horrible show. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I was like, "Why do Why do I care? Like, right? Why 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 is this weird?" why is this dude named shake occupying so much of my mental real estate <laughs> currently? Oh, shake. Um, what just a heel turn from him. What a heel turn. And I, which yeah. I guess, which was not really actually a heel turn because apparently he was just a dick the entire time. And the, right through the magic of editing, we were led to believe otherwise, or at least given the, uh, given a different impression. So, and then we were, we were so close to a wedding where the night before allegedly was said, like, I hate you. You're the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then, well, what what happened? Why don't you want to marry me? It was a mistake. What it, it happens? We fight. That was it happens. That was that show was basically I don't remember how many hours it was eight or nine. It was just eight or yeah, nine hours. Nine total. It was yeah. basically an eight or nine hour infomercial for therapy mm-hmm. and why people should do it. Because the one one part that between listening Shake started to, off by asking if he could put you on his shoulders, like that is an, an unreal, just like what i I just i i I really like the idea of everyone listening to this who's now deeply confused as to why we're talking about like a two-month-old reality show or no i think everyone watched it i'm sure the ratings for love is blind season two were pretty preposterous i bet you there's a law a a strong crossover because guess what it also intertwined with no baseball so when people were waiting for major league baseball to come back they were they were watching uh love is blind yeah that that was basically a uh, an eight or eight or nine hour long uh advertorial for for therapy and its benefits because the funny thing was, as you saw these people talking about this stuff, you could see them coming to therapeutic realizations about like the way they acted or the way they respond to things or how they process shit. Mm. I was like, yeah, that's what you do in therapy. And you guys should really all be doing therapy because I don't know that you end up on a Netflix reality dating show where you have to marry someone you literally do not get to see when you meet them otherwise. Like, yeah, therapy is not the be all end all. It doesn't cure everything. But I feel like the rate of people who are in there, the number of people who are in therapy who then also end up doing a streaming channel or a streaming platform reality dating show. Mm. The number of people who in that group are, were in therapy versus the number who were never been to therapy. I think I know which one is bigger. Especially because again, we got to see them basically do therapy when they did the confessionals uh, to the camera. Like a lot That's of that. Was basically just, we basically watched people do couples therapy <laughs> on a couple's therapy speed run in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, what a bizarre show, truly. I will watch it until it's canceled. Like, I will watch the new season. Which, given that it's love. Netflix, will probably be after the next season. Well, let's hope not. It'll do uh, good numbers, and they'll be like, we don't care about this anymore. Fuck it. No, Who cares. we need it. We need it. Who cares? Here's more... What does Netflix even do? Here's another Zack Snyder movie about zombies. Ozark. But that's wrapping up next month, too. Love no, Ozark. I don't think I don't think Ozark was about zombies. 
No, 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 no. It'd be really Not funny if the Zack Snyder movie about zombies was Ozark and it's just a washed out Jason Bateman and uh, <laughs> Laura Linney looking sad on a dock or whatever it is yeah, that happens with the show. That is exactly what happens, John. They're sad gazing out onto the dock. You're, that, is that is Oscar the... winner Laura Linney, too. She's great. Laura Academy Lenny's... Award winner Laura Linney, who once fried a gorilla with a laser gun in the movie Congo. There you go. She was in Congo. Never saw it. Along with Ernie Hudson, mm-hmm. Tim Curry, <laughs> um, <laughs> a talking gorilla, sort of, kind of. Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker was in that movie. John Taylor. I will talk to you next week. Fangraphs. John Taylor. Let's remember two. some. Let's remember some B-list actors. Joe Don Baker's like Q-list. Oh, shots fired. Oh my goodness. Joe Don Baker doesn't listen to. They this. didn't. They didn't deserve that stray. Look, like, what, I, what I, I, I mean, I shouldn't insult Joe Don Baker because if you insult Joe Don Baker, you are putting yourself at risk of beating of being on the wrong end of a hillbilly beaten stick, a la Walking Tall. Oh, he will go legit walking tall on you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man, like, like Joe Don Baker, if you're listening to this, please do not hit me <laughs> with, with a big tall hillbilly stick. God, that would be one of my favorite. Like, I, I sometimes think like there's someone random that is way more famous than I would ever guess listens to this podcast. That this, that is a thing. So this feels like a good point. This really does feel like a good place to call it now that I'm just openly like asking Joe Don Baker not to hit me with a stick. Yeah. You know, because he listens to this. I'm telling you, John, there is a celebrity that listens to this that we don't know about. And it's just going to be like one day I'll fi- they'll just be like in a random interview on parade. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I listen to the Chase Holmes podcast daily when I'm doing my runs. And I'm like, excuse me. And it'll be that? it'll be Joe Don Baker. And he'll be like, I heard what was said about me. So now I'm going to go get my big hillbilly stick. John Taylor, always a pleasure. I'll talk to you next week. All right, we're back here on the Chase Must Podcast, where I am now joined by a first timer who went to a very good undergrad school. Like I, not to make it seem like this is a biased podcast that is extremely friendly to people who went to the University of Tennessee Knoxville, the greatest university in the nation, where the Knoxville, the Tennessee University of Tennessee Knoxville uh, baseball team, they might be number one in the nation at the moment. They might be. People are saying that they're number one in the nation, and those people will be correct. But to Michael Cole, who is actually closer now where that to old miss where the tennessee volunteers just swept them this past week he's in memphis where we don't we don't really call memphis tennessee memphis is arkansas to a lot of folks over here but to michael what do you make of that as someone who's been in knoxville been in east tennessee and been in west tennessee is it the same is it still tennessee how are you how you doing chase and memphis is Nah, Memphis is his own thing. You know, a lot yeah. of people in Memphis uh, make the joke, uh, Memphis, Memphis. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I lived in Memphis, you know, my whole life, born and raised. Yeah. And like you say, um, Arkansas. Like, I didn't go to Arkansas a lot. I yeah. went to Mississippi, North Mississippi a little bit more. Yeah. Like, you talked about Ole Miss, their area. Went mm-hmm. there a little bit more. But we still differentiate ourselves from, like, Mississippi people as well. So, yeah. Uh, but when I moved, like, to Knoxville, mm-hmm. Six hours across the state, you know, 450 plus miles. It was a, it was a, it's a nice difference. You know, you still have. It's a haul, man. Tennessee's yeah. long. People don't realize how long Tennessee is. And that's where I'm yeah. saying, like, it's just so long. You're going across the, like the whole state down. Yes. I-40. I think 
uh, exit like 10 or 11 is mm-hmm. you know, when you go from Memphis and you just drive across. And my exit number in Knoxville had to be like 387 <laughs> for the campus is like 386, yeah. 387, something like that. Sounds that. right. Yeah. Yes. And that's literally you literally go 10, 11, 12, 13, 300, 321, 300, all the way to 387. Just, I mean, it, it gets boring, but yeah, but yeah they're completely they're completely different. Uh, mm-hmm. There are similarities, you know. We, I think I've never been, never been to Memphis, never been to Memphis. Wow, I mean, I'm from Atlanta. Been, well, you've been in Nashville, right? Uh, I'm in Knoxville, so I'm I'm here. I'm a grad student here at UTK, but um, yes. so I'm from Atlanta originally, and it's the same okay. kind of thing with what you're describing with Memphis, where like. Atlanta is its own thing. Like I'm from right. Atlanta, like the rest of Georgia is nothing like Atlanta. So if you're culture. like, yeah, the culture is different, but it's also it, the culture especially is different, but it's also just that like it, everything, it's just a different vibe. It's a different de- way of life. It's a different, like there's nothing wrong with the two differences, but like you drive through the majority of Tennessee, it's very different than what you're going to run right. into in Memphis. And it's just like in Georgia, if you're driving through Waycross it's going to be a little bit different or Statesboro than Atlanta. Yeah. In a lot of ways, man, even like if you just talk about sports, everywhere else in Tennessee, football is number one, except Memphis. Memphis Mm -hmm. is the only place, you know, the only big, now you have little small West Tennessee places that are close to Memphis that, you know, kind of neighbor Memphis that have the same Mm -hmm. uh, mindset, but Memphis in terms of, you know, the division one prospects that come from Memphis, uh, you're looking at more basketball, I'm, yeah. more basketball than football. Whereas across the state, you know, when I went to Knoxville, Knoxville has some, you know, a couple really good basketball programs that would meet, you know, uh, the Memphis schools and basketball state tournaments. But like the intensity level for football and basketball is completely flipped when you go yeah. over there as compared to Memphis, where there's a lot of football talent in Memphis too. But basketball is like supreme, and once you go across the state, it's completely flipped. Isn't Kennedy he he's from Memphis, right? Isn't Kennedy yeah, Chandler from yeah, Memphis? Yeah. Yeah. So that's another one. Uh Chandler. Chandler is mm-hmm. definitely um from from Memphis. And then um there have been a couple. There have been a couple yeah. players. And then even with the football team, you have a couple, you know, a couple guys recently that come from Memphis too. That's like a good recruiting area uh for them. Man, so you've got the you got a great situation now. You joined the beat, uh the Memphis beat in December uh and you get to go back home that's a that's a great thing man uh, how have you liked being the grizzlies beat reporter is it a dream come true like what it, what has it been like at the commercial appeal thus far man it's it's been fun um you know i think my my dream was always you know like uh to the national level mm-hmm. but like i always thought as i started to get into this business you know in college when i was covering uh ut sports and i was like mm-hmm. man, you know, it'd be nice to go back home at some point, but um, I didn't think that opportunity would ever come, you know, just just uh, because of certain like when they, they actually hired, uh, I believe, David Cobb, who was a UT grad as well. And that's my guy. And when he got the job, you know, honestly, I thought, well, that job's not going to be open for a while. Like, David's yeah, really, David's good. Uh, he's you know, he's a Memphis native as well. So I was like, there goes that job. Like mm. and I never, you know, even considered. But. The opportunity came about, you know, I was in Philly at the Philadelphia Inquirer two and a half years. That's I mean, that's a dream out of college. Right. That's a mm. top five media market. And I had a great role. I had a sports culture role where I would go to a Phillies game on a, on um, a day. Then Sunday, I'd go to Lincoln Financial Field you know, for mm. an Eagles game. Then maybe a Wednesday during the week, I'd go to the Wells Fargo Center for a Sixers game. I mean, it was just like a dream job in a way. Mm. But uh, 
when I got presented this opportunity, it, it allowed me to, you know, um, create a, you know, more of a niche, more of a focus on one thing, because I do pride myself on, you know, football, basketball, baseball, all things that I really love, like equally. But I was able to come here, be a beat writer, be one of the youngest, you know, NBA mm-hmm. beat writers in the country as well. So that was, you know, um, a piece. And then it's home. Like, I never imagined coming back home. You know, I spent four years in Knoxville and right after Knoxville, I left and I went to Philly. So it was like I didn't have, you know, that time to go back home really like that. And um, so coming back home, being around. But, yeah, it's it's been so fun, man. And then the team is really good. The people really, you know, love the team as well. Have you been back to a game at, at, on Knoxville since you graduated or no? Uh, I was supposed to go back mm-hmm. with that March 2020. Ooh. You know what happened? You know yeah. what happened? We were planning to go back uh, orange, orange and white weekend. I was supposed mm-hmm. to go back to orange and white, and then I was going to go. I forgot who the series was against that weekend. It was real, real big SEC series. Yeah, um, baseball. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go back. I was going to go back there um, to Lindsey Nelson for that. And um, yeah, COVID yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, we got shut down, and I was stuck in Philly for the next a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, man, it's crazy. It's already been two years. Uh, right. since all that but yeah no i think the Argent white games messed up this year because they're renovating the stadium so yeah, they're not even yeah. doing it uh at Nealon, which i don't i forgot where they said they're gonna it's not nashville i want to they're doing it somewhere else and I, I i should probably look that up uh before mm-hmm. that comes up but i'm not sure where it is um but in terms of the grizzlies the team that you're you're quite familiar with demichael and you've been keeping up with a lot this year um the first thing that stands out to me about this team, and I want to get your perspective as someone who has watched every Grizzlies game this year, and I'm sure you've heard this and you've seen this, but like the fact that this team has still just been just as dominant when Jaw's not in the lineup, how do you explain that? Because like as someone who watches every Hawks game and sees what happens when Trey Young uh, is out of the game and misses time, and like if he's just having a bad night and what that does to this team, like mm-hmm. it's a rarity for a team to do what the Grizzlies have done this year. Why in your estimation have the Grizzlies been able to withstand missing jaw for, for a pretty significant portion, almost 20 games this year. Right. Well, the easy answer would be, you know, they built depth. That's what a lot of people will really say in the simplest form. But if you look at the Hawks, I mean, personally, I think the Hawks have a decent amount of depth too at the wing Mm -hmm. positions and things like that. So it's not that simple. I think it's, the fact that you look with a lot of star players in the NBA, the system is kind of built around them. Mm-hmm. The system in Memphis isn't necessarily built around job. It's it's more of, you know, Taylor Jenkins fast up and down. The bench plays the same way. Um, the starters play the same way. And even without John Moran in the game, the style of play, they're still at the top of the league in points and paints. They're still at the top of the league you know, in um, free throw attempts, they're still at the top of the league and, you know, steals, deflections, loose balls recovered, all those things, the core values of this team still remain the same because, you know, you think about LeBron James, for example, everywhere he goes, the system is automatically built around him. That's why when he misses time, you see a big drop off. Trey Young Mm -hmm. in Atlanta, super pick and roll heavy guy. So you take the ball out of his hands, which is when he gets hurt, now you're putting the ball in guys' hands who really don't have the ball much. Mm. Uh, whereas with the Grizzlies, uh, you're putting the ball in guys' hands a little bit more. But I wrote a couple stories on this too uh, on on the commercial appeal. It's two 
main players who have really benefited the most. Tyus Jones. So they have a really good backup point guard as well. Mm-hmm. Tyus Jones is one of the best backup point guards in the NBA. And to put that in perspective, like he has led the NBA in assist to turnover ratio the last four seasons. Last mm-hmm. four seasons. He is he literally he takes care of the ball like it's, a, yeah. like it's an infant. Like he does <laughs> not turn the ball over, Chase. And mm-hmm. right now I think he's at 6.6 assists per turnover. Yeah. The next closest is like 5.2. It's a, oh, it's wow. a wide gap. Like Tyus Jones is that guy when it comes to that. And there's also Desmond Bain. So yeah. the Grizzlies hit on the margins. Like Desmond Bain was the last pick in the first round, and now he's one of the top candidates for most improved. Like mm. that's what you have to do. Um, in the summer, Desmond Bain, you know, when he was in the draft process, he was viewed as this, you know, guy from TCU, spot-up shooter, 3 and D, you know, that whole label. Mm-hmm. The Grizzlies challenged him in the summer by playing him at point guard in summer league. Wanted to get more out of it. It was super uncomfortable. He wasn't mm-hmm. really doing great at it, but they kept pressing. They kept pressing. And now you're seeing the results because when Tyus Jones is out of the game, Desmond Bain assumes backup point guard duties and the team has flourished. So mm-hmm. that's been a big part of it. Those two guys and them just keeping the team going, just keeping the system intact because the perfect example would be even when Ja was healthy at one point, there was a three-game window when everyone was in healthy safety protocols and all that in January. Uh, Tyus Jones and Desmond Bain missed three games at the same time. The yeah. Grizzlies went one and two in that stretch, and, I mean, it was ugly. This Ja Morant would play great. Like, he averaged 35 points over those three games. But that mm-hmm. little time he was out of the game, the Grizzlies were getting destroyed. So mm-hmm. I think Desmond Bain missed three games, came right back after that, and to put in perspective, like how important he is, Tyus Jones even missed the next three games after those three games, and the Grizzlies won all three of those games. So it, hmm. it, they just need one of those guys back. Now they have both of those guys, even without John Morant. And that's why they're thriving. The system is Taylor Jenkins is he's a genius. Like he, he's a genius to put it simple, and the system is strong. Well, describe the system. What is Taylor Jenkins? Because you said it's not about Jaw, it's not, it's it's more than that. Like, what is he doing? What kind of cool sets? Because, I mean, you got the Spanish drag fly stuff that we're doing in Atlanta, stuff with Trey, yep. with Capella and Collins. But, like, what specifically for folks that aren't able to tune into every Grizzlies game, what is he running, especially in the half court? Because they love to be in the full court. And this is uh, going to lead into the uh, another question I have because I – my biggest concern with the Grizzlies is their half court sets come playoff time. Like I'm, I'm concerned when they can't run, like what happens when the game slows down and when they're forced to score in tight games and it, it's just jaw is going to have to like, the offense is going to have to turn into what jaw can do at some point. Um, But what, what does he run? What does he do that separates him as a coach? What makes him a genius? Chase. I mean, you, you pretty much hit it because with him, the thing is they're, they like to get out and run. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're so and it's everyone. It's when Ja gets the board, he pushes it. DeAnthony Melton, Tyus Jones, um, these wings, you know, they run, they run the wings like wide receivers. Mm-hmm. A lot of their game is getting up the court so fast, even when they don't get the fast break points, they mm-hmm. get up the court so fast. Let's say the first guy back uh for the opponent is the point guard. He mm-hmm. has to identify whoever the first guy, you know, back is. And usually it's not the point guard. It's one of those wings running or sometimes it's Jaron Jackson or one of the bigs. So he mm-hmm. has to guard him. And now you have mismatches around the floor and they attack those mismatches. So in the simplest form, 
their half court stuff, like you said, honestly, it's it's really not great to me. You know, mm. the half court is their weakness. Um, they're they're pretty much heavy pick and roll. Yeah. They do a lot of their their heavy pick and roll, and they get a lot of good stuff out of their pick and roll. They run a lot of stuff for Desmond Bain, but pick and roll. Who does John love pick and roll with? Who is his favorite partner? Stephen Adams. So okay. I wrote a story mm-hmm. on on this uh, with the commercial appeal. Stephen Adams and John Morant's pick and roll chemistry is is very unique. So Stephen Adams, you know, he's played with Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. And all these guys, and he comes to Memphis and he gives John Morant this tip. You know, Steve Adams is basically a brick wall. I mean, mm-hmm. so they have this weird thing. You have to, <laughs> to 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 go and you have to picture this in your head as I say it. When he sets a screen on the guard, the guard, you know, is 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 coming from behind John Morant. So John Morant puts the guard on his back. Yeah. When the guard is on John Morant's back, you know, he's slowly going towards the rim, and Stephen Adams rolls to the rim as well but when he rolls to the rim he's not rolling to get a basket he's rolling to shield the big man so when he shields the big man what you have is ja has the defender on his back the point yeah. guard, and and steven adams has uh the big the big man probably on his left shoulder and ja gets a wide open layup uh three mm-hmm. four time if he doesn't get that wide open layup when they run that that one five pick and roll desmond bain is usually in the corner Desmond Bain is the one guy on the Grizzlies, every team on the scouting court, they say, that's the guy you don't leave. So yeah. usually it's a wide open layup. Sometimes it's not a wide open layup. It's a kick out to Desmond Bain, and that's that's money too. So they they put those three guys on one side a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And when you put them all on one side, you're, you're forcing some tough decisions. So um, they do a lot of pick and pop with Jaron Jackson too. But at the end of the day, when you talk about their best set, their money pick and roll every time, it's going to be Ja and – Steven Adams or Brandon Clark. They do the same thing with Brandon Clark. Mm-hmm. He's like how to do the whole shield thing too. Steven Adams is just more effective at it because he's like seven feet 260 and he like picks up seven footers off the ground. But uh that's that's kind of their money thing. But they're they're pretty heavy pick and roll. You know, that's we've seen in the playoffs, you know, James Harden, super heavy pick and roll guy. It kind of didn't work out for him. But the Grizzlies, they try to pride themselves on running and creating those mismatches in transition. You know, they're number one in the league. And second chance points too. Hmm. So you look at their, you know, you look at their field goal percentage numbers, which goes back to your point about the half court sets. They're not really that good. They're like middle yeah. of the 15, 16, 17 in field goal percentage, but they're number one in second chance points. They're number one in offensive rebounds. So at the end of the day, you're getting more shots. It kind of evens out. So even though they're um they're able to be 15, 16, 17th in the league in field goal percentage, they're still tied for the most points per game. How has Jaron Jackson been? Do you think he has shown flashes that he can be? I mean, he is he's a big part of their future. And it's like every young team goes through this, right? So I, not to bring everything back to the Hawks and stuff like that. But like when you start winning, the mm-hmm. <laughs> time becomes of the like time is of the essence where it's like, OK, now you've won. Like the Hawks are now in a rough spot. If they miss the playoffs, which is a strong possibility with the play in and like who they get matched up. If they get the Nets in that first game. Like they're out like it's over. Um <laughs> Like, it's not looking good right now. So, after making the Easter Conference Finals, though, the year before, and you have a superstar like Trey, like, they, we've seen what happens even with Zion in New Orleans, where it's right. just like, if you're not moving in the right direction and we're not happy and you're not doing everything, then it's over. Like, I'm, I'm moving on. Like, I, the pressure is just there. Jaw is now there. Jaw is a, like, people can debate whether or not he's true first-team All-NBA, that kind of thing. But the point being is that, like, he's in that conversation. And once you're in that conversation... 
And once you become a number two seed in the Western Conference, the the clock's ticking. And now you're like, oh, we're playing. We're back. Grit and grind is back. We're excited. This is Memphis basketball is back. We are getting that playoff gate revenue. We're going for it now. Like we're we're moving. The thing that I wonder about is like a lot of their future is still tied into what Jaron Jackson's going to be because Desmond Bain's a huge hit and we know he's a huge hit, but they need more. If you're going to stay in that level, stay in that top four seed level, you're going to need Jaron Jackson to be what he was before the injury. You need him to be an elite three-point shooter. You need him to be a dominant pick and pop threat that where you have Bane in the corner, you have to worry about Jaron Jackson. You have to worry about Steven Adams shielding dudes the way he does. Like you talked about, like you need all that to coalesce, but you really do need that. And I just, I wonder from your perspective, from what you've seen from Jaron this year, has he shown enough for you to believe that he is someone who can get there? Because like he's shown flashes in the past, but do you think he has shown enough that his chemistry with Ja will be enough to keep this thing moving as a top four West team for the next couple of years? Chase, I think he can get there. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, I mean, he better with the money they just paid him. Yeah. He, he, he That's another part of it. Yeah, exactly. They they committed to him financially. So, yeah. Uh, with that being said, you know, it's still a working process in terms of how he and Ja play together. Like when mm-hmm. um, I wrote a story actually uh, a couple weeks ago on Jaron Jackson being the most important factor to a finals run for this yeah. team. And all of his stats. We're on the same page about all of this so far. We need to disagree on something on this podcast. <laughs> we might get there. So <laughs> with everything with Jaron Jackson correlates to winning and losing. When he mm-hmm. shoots well, they win. When he shoots bad, they lose. And the key to him, I think, is right now you're playing him at the four a lot of times. And he's he's not abusing these little guys as much as you want him to. He's 6'11". He's guarded every night, you know, by a smaller guy. Most nights, you know, it's six, eight, six, seven wings who are playing the small ball four. Some nights he's matched up against bigger power forwards. And from what I've seen, mm-hmm. he actually plays better against those bigger guys because that's when he's able to go off the dribble and use that skill set that made him a top five pick. You know, that's what people were drooling over with Jaron Jackson. Wow, he can shoot and take it off the dribble and things like that. You know, the skill set is there. He has it all. Yeah. And when he plays the five, you're matched up against these big slow foot centers. He's able to showcase that off the dribble game a little bit more, draw fouls, things like that. But to the contrary, I haven't seen him develop the back to the basket. And when you talk about half court, it's a big reason right there. Uh, They don't have that guy. They can just throw it in the low post to and say, here, like we we can't do nothing here. Just make something happen. Yeah. Aaron Jackson, usually he'll have to face up. And he'll try to, you know, take it off the dribble. But there's no, you know, turnarounds and, and you know, up and under is really just consistently in his bag. You know, he has this hook shot and stuff he shows occasionally. But it's not a go-to move. You know, you look at DeAndre Aiden and his hook shot. You yeah. look at, um, you know, Giannis and just him being Giannis and, and mm-hmm. you know, Anthony Davis and, you know, so forth with these other power forwards. And then, of course, the Senators and beat Jokic, et cetera, Cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all – When it comes push to shove, you can just throw the ball to them and move out of the way. The Grizzlies aren't there with Jaron Jackson yet. Can they get Mm. there? Yeah, because he he has it all. Chase, like I mean, he the way he dribbles the ball. I mean, we we seen one of the best Grizzlies plays this season was when he dribbled the ball past half court and threw an alley oop to John Morant. Like he has a freakish skill set, but 
The thing is he has to consistently put it together and that's where they are right now. Um, he'll have one game where he'll short 24 points, make four three-pointers, block five shots, have eight rebounds, and you're like, man, this is this is the dude. This is the unicorn, as they call him mm-hmm. in Memphis, the unicorn. And then there's a game where he has eight points, five fouls, <laughs> 16 minutes, mm-hmm. and you're like, man, we're glad we got Brandon Clark because, yeah. you know, the depth he he comes in and kind of you know shields and takes some of that pressure off of Jaron Jackson, but but yeah, um, a lot of the future is tied to Jaron Jackson. I do believe we should probably talk about John Morant before Grizzlies fans who are listening to this get upset. Um, that <laughs> it, it, it comes back to Jaw. What have you what have you learned about him? What do you like about Jaw off the court? What have you seen with how he is with teammates? Like how he is with fans? Like I'm curious because he seems like someone who just really really loves the city and has just become just a a big part of memphis basketball and he seems like someone who truly loves being there and wants to be there for a long time is it the vibe that you've gotten and then like what have you what have you seen with him with teammates how coaches describe him his work ethic what what have you seen from john morant this year yeah um i've spent the first 18 years of my life you know living in Memphis and I seen, mm-hmm. you know, Jason Williams, uh Stro Stroll Swift, Pal Gasol, Bonzi Wells, uh Shane Battier, and then the Grit and Grind era, you know, Lorenzen Wright too, homegrown guy. Yeah. But Grit and Grind era, era comes along. You get Mark Gasol, Zebo, Mike Conley, TA, I say all these guys seem to beat. Yeah, yeah, the, the best number two pick of all time. So <laughs> I say all these names. To say that I've, I haven't seen a guy relate to Memphis like John Morant does. These people mm-hmm. love him. I mean, it's afforded me the chance to write some really creative stuff. I was in Houston last week, and I wrote a story where I went to uh, Johnny Dang, you know, Houston mm-hmm. celebrity jeweler, and I went to his um, his jewelry shop and talked about a grill he did for John Morant. And it's things mm-hmm. like that where he really – when you talk about off the court, how he relates to the city, you know um, – I think about like Mike Conley. Mike Conley was one of the most beloved players of all time, but you weren't going to hear Mike Conley's name, like in a Memphis artist's rap song or, or an Mm -hmm. R&B song or anything like that. Like you hear John Morant's name. He's culturally Mm -hmm. too. He's very in tune. And like, like something like grills, that's been a big part of Memphis culture forever. And John Morant goes and buys this big diamond grill and he buys these chains. So now, even though he's not playing, he's on the bench and everyone's looking at him and you know, he just feels like a Memphis guy in that way. Same thing mm-hmm. with teammates. Uh, he has their back almost like like a role, like a, one of those role players that are like the enforcers. You know, I think yeah. like Udonis Haslam. Right. Or, uh, see, I can use the Hawks for you, like Solomon mm-hmm. Hill. When, you yeah. know, Got to miss Solomon Hill. I yeah, miss Solomon Hill. You know, if, if something goes wrong with Trey, you know Solomon's coming. Yeah. And, and that's – it's almost like – Sometimes you got to tell y'all, like, in your head, you're like, dude, you're the superstar. Like, you, mm-hmm. can't, like, you can't risk that because um, I, the other day, so they played, who was their last game against? Um, it'll come to me. But in the last game, the Warriors, they played mm-hmm. the Warriors and Bielinsa. Uh, yeah, because everybody was out for Golden State in that game, I exactly. think, right? Yeah. So, yeah, Bielinsa commits a foul, mm-hmm. and he, like um, – hits uh, Dylan Brooks in the shoulder, like, really hard. It, it, it became a flagrant foul. John Morant not playing on the bench. <laughs> and he, like, gets up 
And, you know, he puts a little colorful language in it as well. But he's like, he's not cut like that. And he's like, <laughs> and it's like, dude, you can't just, you know, like mm-hmm. he he, he kind of, but he rides hard for his teammates. You know, like when John Morant got into it, um, you know, with the Bulls that game where Steven Adams picked up uh, Tony Bradley and carried him off and it went kind of viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't laughing about that like everyone else. He was like, he was doing what he should do because I do the same yeah. thing. That's John Morant's mindset. You know, he he rides hard for his teammates. Um, it's kind of really refreshing to see, you know, from a superstar, because usually the superstars are the ones getting babysitted, you know, like yeah. if, something, if someone in those OKC days even came close to Russell Westbrook, uh, you knew Kendrick Perkins, Serge Ibaka, uh, Thabo Cephalosha, you knew all those guys were going to come over there and, and, you know, and Russ didn't have to lay a finger. I mean, he could, you know, say whatever he wanted to say, but he didn't have to do anything. And in Memphis, job ja doesn't have to, but mm-hmm. takes on that role of being that guy. So he's he's loved in that way. And like I said, the city the city is really receptive of the things he's doing. But he's really a down to earth superstar. He's real chill. So you like talking to him? Yeah. Is he pretty yeah. open? Yeah. He um he he's pretty much you know they've been I, I tell people they've been winning so much since I since mm-hmm. I got here. Like I haven't really you, you know can't leave. Yeah, like <laughs> that's what they're saying. But since I since I got here, the very first game I got here was when um, you know, they lost his first game back. They lost mm-hmm. the OKC and every, and the fan in the crowd yelled out that uh the team was better without him. And you know, it kind of hurt him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like he basically was saying things like, uh, I don't know what you get out of that, you know, talking about the fan, and it became a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a real big deal because uh you know, everyone was like, dude, you know, the team is better without the team is better with John Morant. Like, why would you say something like that? But um, overall, since I've been here, you know, he's the inner. He's one of the guys, you know, Dylan Brooks brings the energy. But John, John Morant brings those highlight plays that, you know, take the energy up to another level. Uh, he's real cool to talk to. Like I said, after mm. game, he's real good for some good sound bites. You know, he gave us the. Uh, we're not dodging no smoke. We're climbing up the <laughs> chimney. You know, that was mm-hmm. one of uh, a lot of people's favorite ones. I asked him if the Grizzlies were the most exciting team in the NBA. He doesn't shy away from those type of questions. You know, other yeah. players, some players, those veteran guys, let the nah, we'll let the play do the talking. Job was like, yeah. 100%. We're the most exciting team in the league. And But he doesn't talk about himself as much. Mm-hmm. He, If you – almost every press conference that we have with him, he's vouching for – Jaron Jackson, defensive player of the year. Taylor Jenkins, coach of the year. Desmond Bain, most improved player. You go to his tweets, I guarantee you, you scroll down his tweets, you're going to see it like three or four times. Jaron Jackson, DPOY. Desmond mm-hmm. Bain, MIP. Uh, Taylor Jenkins, COY. Like he vouches for these guys all the time. And everyone's like, dude, what about you? You're not going to mm-hmm. say John Brad for MVP? And he's like, no, I just want to ring. That's, yeah. that's what it is. So very selfless uh, too. Like sometimes – when he when he had the fifty two point game, you know he talked about it a little bit, but I think uh, Jaron Jackson and one of the other players. No, this was in New York when we were, when we were at the Garden. Um, Jaron Jackson just like jumps on the mic because you know they're trying to get Ja to talk about himself and he's just not doing it. So Jaron yeah. just like, look, this dude is amazing. <laughs> this is special what we're yeah. witnessing right now, and that's how it is. He doesn't talk about himself as much, but he he really hypes up those guys around him. And that was in the Garden, mind you, when. Every other Grizzlies player got minimal reaction when their name was called, and John Morant almost got like a home ovation in the garden yeah. when his name was announced. So you think John 
uh Jaron Jackson are pretty cool. Like Jaron's cool with it being Jaw's team. They're yeah. tight. Yeah, they're, okay. they're real tight. And it's there's a, I mean Jaron Jackson, like I talked about how Jaw vouches for Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson yeah. is the same way when it comes to him. I think about when Ja Morant was after he was announced an all-star starter, the mm-hmm. Grizzlies did like a you know, they were waiting on him, you know, in the pregame to come into the tunnel so they all could just jump out and surprise him. Jaron Jackson was getting out of his car at the same time as John Morant. So usually, you know, John Morant figured something was up because Jaron Jackson, when he gets out of the car, you know, he's usually just like, what's up? And then they mm-hmm. just and they walk. Jaron Jackson gets out of his car and he starts sprinting. <laughs> he's like, hey, everyone, he's coming, he's coming, because it was earlier than normal. He's letting mm-hmm. him he's coming. So it's just to show like his excitement for Ja and this whole, you know, journey. Like he's like Ja, one of Ja's biggest cheerleaders. You know, he's been there uh with him since he got there. Well, we'll end on this. Um I have said on this podcast, and this is something that I just if I'm a Grizzlies fan, I'm nervous about the Timberwolves. I'm mm-hmm. nervous about that first round matchup. And that might like I would not I would not have thought that like two months ago, even maybe a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. The half court stuff with Ant, Russell, and Towns, where I'm like, okay, in a seven game series, like I I want to see what this looks like. How does Steven Adams get drawn out on Cat? Like, what does Cat do with Adams and how does that matchup work? How does Jaron Jackson work with uh Vanderbilt and with uh Minnesota? Because he's just been so good yeah. for them at the four, just a defensive ways. Like, I actually think Minnesota is a bad matchup. I mean, you throw in Pat Bev on Ja Morant, like um. suddenly, like we're just going to get like a really back. It's a NBA Twitter perfect series. Like it's a perfect NBA Twitter series that like the national media will not care or the national fan base or whatever will not care about, but I will watch every single game, like losing my mind. Cause I think that goes seven. Like are, am I crazy for thinking that wolves is actually kind of a terrifying uh, first round matchup for the Grizzlies at this point? Okay. Well, you were wondering when we would disagree. So, okay. I think here we go. So say the best for last. This is the thing with the Timberwolves, the two and two against the Grizzlies. They've been back and forth all season long. Uh, great matchup. Great mm-hmm. matchup. But I think the Grizzlies are just better overall. And you look at the things that the Timberwolves are really good at. And you can say the same thing with the Grizzlies, but everything yeah. that, that the Timberwolves are top near top of the league at the Grizzlies are better. Mm-hmm. And in a way, they're similar in their styles. They're both like to get up and down and transition. I yep. believe um, last time they played, so this was uh, late February. So mm-hmm. I'm sure the numbers have moved around a little bit, but the Grizzlies were top in transition points. The Timberwolves were top five. I believe they were like fourth mm-hmm. or something in that range. Uh, steals and blocks, same thing. Grizzlies, number one in steals, number one in blocks. Timberwolves, top 10 in both of those categories. But, you know, behind the Grizzlies. So, the same stats that the Grizzlies kind of, you know, make their name on in terms of wreaking havoc, creating turnovers, getting out in transition. Mm. The Timberwolves do the same thing, but the Grizzlies yeah. have been a little bit better at it. But just from a matchup perspective, I think uh, the Timberwolves are 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 the the preferable matchup for them because you talk about those those guards. And mm-hmm. D'Angelo Russell, you know, he had a real good game, you know, in the last time they played Memphis. They won, and D'Angelo Russell took over in the fourth quarter. And they mm-hmm. were kind of bad in that game. But they're going to have Dylan Brooks to guard one of those guys. Cat, uh, you know, it's amazing. He's going to, like you say, he's going to draw Steven Adams out. Mm-hmm. But the Grizzlies are versatile with their bigs in terms of 
they can have, you know, Steven Adams in the game. And Steven Adams, you know, you're not going to bully ball Steven Adams. And then Brandon Clark, who is a little bit smaller, but he's so he just brings the energy. He can guard pretty much two through five, maybe some teams one through five. And when it comes to Cat bringing him out to the three point line, he's going to be comfortable there. So yeah. I agree. It's a tough matchup. I say six games Grizzlies. But I feel like everything that the Timberwolves, if you look at the numbers, each stat that the Timberwolves are good at, the, the Grizzlies are just a little bit better. And, and, you know, they've been playing, you know, great ball. Like, yeah. wrong, the Timberwolves have been playing great ball. But I'm at the point now, Chase, I say, at the end of the day, you're, you're in the Western Conference. There's there's not a perfect matchup out there. You get the Clippers, mm-hmm. wow, throw that record out the window. Paul George is back now. So sure. you, throw that, you throw that out the window. You get the Nuggets or, you know, the Jazz – in that five, six range, you get the Nuggets. Mm. They're supposed to get Jamal Murray back. They could yeah. get Michael Porter back. That's a top two, three seed for the last three seasons when healthy. And then, you know, the Jazz beat the Grizzlies in five games last year. So yeah. there's no, you know, perfect matchup in the Western Conference. You just got to, you just got to, you know, suck it up. Deal with the hand you're dealt. Yeah. Exactly. But I think, you know, the Timberwolves, that's six games, I, I think. And, the, and you talk about the Pat Bev matchup. There's gonna be some fun with that. Uh, yes. Chase. The last time they played, it mm-hmm. got it, it got a little uh, cranked up. You know, we yeah. John, like I said, he's usually pretty open. But after the game, when when we asked him about Pat Bev, um, you can tell it's, that's not his <laughs> favorite player in the league. We'll just say that. <laughs> Pat Bev is just like the dude. Like I would love to have Pat Bev on the Hawks. Like I like yeah. the Hawks defense is atrocious, and just having somebody like him. Like you want somebody like that on your team, but if he's not on your team, he drives you insane. Yep. Like yep. that's just. That's just how it works. Um, DeMichael, what can the good folks check out from you across the commercial appeal this week and uh, Locked On Grizzlies and everything else? What uh, what can they check out from you, man? Yeah, so Monday through Friday, Locked On Grizzlies, you know, we're pretty much going to be previewing games, uh, talking about everything that's going on in the games. And then we'll, you know, we'll discuss some of the things that are going on with my commercial appeal work as well. So I have a, you know, every week I have two to three uh, feature stories, takeout stories that have very little to do with what's happening on the court. Um, mm-hmm. Profiling some things like I talked about with John Morant in, in the grill that he got done and uh, things like that. So we, we we do a lot of those fun stories that, you know, really um, are refreshing. And then, you know, we do some basketball breakdowns as well. I just did the story on Desmond Bain stepping up as the backup point guard with the Grizzlies, having, you know, four games and five or more assists in his last five games. Longest stretch of his career um doing things but yeah there's a bigger breakdown of that on the commercial appeal and you know we're just gonna have to, we're gonna have the game coverage uh, i'm traveling you know so i'll be um on the road for all these games and you know when we're on the road we get some exclusive things as well so uh yeah just check us out commercialappeal.com and you know we'll, we'll have everything covered and then some there you go go subscribe to the commercial appeal if you've not already done so Go support local journalism. It's good. And you can read DeMichael's work every day. So go do that and subscribe to Locked on Grizzlies if you've not already done so. DeMichael, thank you so much for making the time, man. This was this was a lot of fun. I greatly appreciate it. Appreciate you, Chase. Thank you for having me. Go Vols. Go Vols. There we go. Yeah. All right. That'll do it for this edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you again to DeMichael Cole of the Commercial Appeal. Go subscribe to the Memphis Commercial Appeal today if you have not already done so. Uh, along with Fangraphs John Taylor. Go subscribe to Fangraphs.com today.
get you ready for the Major League Baseball season. So go ahead and do that today. Follow them both on Twitter and all that good stuff. And uh, if you like today's episode, please make sure you go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcast. Share the show, tell people about the show, why you like it, all that good stuff, and why they should maybe listen to uh, we're on YouTube, youtube.com, Chase Must Podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Never miss a video episode either. That would be great. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Email this very program, Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. New episode coming tomorrow, every day on this podcast. New episodes. Make sure you're subscribed on this very feed so that you never miss an episode. And we'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Go balls. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.